Before we get into a very difficult uh, passage, how about something light? Um, so it came to my attention this morning. Uh, we all have, uh, many of us have different hobbies. I've, I've heard there's some that mountain bike here. I've also uh, heard there's some who work on old cars and uh, restore them and, and make them uh, beautiful. And I guess we had a, a winner uh, at a show. Uh, Rich, who was it? Mr. Hubbard, Leroy, uh, purple Barracuda, one, whatever. What, what was that, Leroy? 40 years, 40 years. So uh, if you're interested in Leroy's uh, purple Barracuda, uh, talk to him about the prize that he won uh, at the show for that. We have a, a difficult and upsetting, uh, a violent passage uh, before us today. And I think maybe the first thing to say uh, in general, uh, not just about this passage, but about the Bible, is that the Bible is, is incredibly real. It doesn't sugarcoat things. It doesn't avoid the horrors of life the difficulty of living in a broken world, the abuse and suffering that takes place in people's lives, both um, 3,000 years ago in the life of Tamar uh, and today. So my prayer for us is that we will find hope in God's word today, but we may be asking ourselves, you may be asking yourself after that passage was just read, is, 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 is why is this in here? And I think one of the answers to that question is that the Bible is, is so real and deals with actual realities in life. If I were uh, to respond to someone like Tamar, what she suffered, violence, abuse, and rape, if I were to respond in the sense of, of wanting uh, help for someone like Tamar, uh, today, I think of a couple different banners uh, in ways that I would pray or in ways that people would speak into someone's life who suffered in this way uh, as time went along. In the raw moments, in the hours or days after a traumatic event like this, there isn't much to say. But as the weeks and the months and the years go by, there needs to be care and there needs to be hope in this person's life. And so as I think of Tamar or someone in her situation today, I want to think of the gospel and of Jesus. 1 Timothy chapter 1, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And it's that word save that I want to kind of emphasize at the heart of the gospel that brings hope. It doesn't just mean that we will live in the new heavens and the new earth and we are saved from God's wrath. Part of knowing Christ, of being in a relationship with him, is being transformed in this life, being saved in this life, so that we can live lives of love and joy and peace. And the power of the gospel and the relationship that a human has with Jesus, even one who has suffered intense and severe trauma, can be changed and can live a life of joy and love 
and hope. Another thing, another banner, another truth that, that we would pray for or want to be over someone's life, like Tamar or someone who experienced this kind of trauma and abuse today, would be the reality of human dignity in her life. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. When humans go through some sort of traumatic experience, when they suffer, when they are abused, they can feel full of shame. They can feel unworthy. They can feel incredibly low and depressed. And this truth in Genesis 1.27, that every human being, boy and girl, man and woman, young and old, atheist, theist, Christian, Muslim, secular, new age, every human being is created in God's image and is an image bearer and has value and worth and beauty. So these are a couple of the banners that I would want to have over, uh, over a person, whether we're praying or as the months and years tick by, we were able to enter into a friendship, a shepherding relationship with someone like Tamar. But it's not only uh, Tamar that is desperate in this passage. Uh, there are others. Uh, you may not have heard of uh, Brian Stevenson. He's written this book called Just Mercy. And one of the messages that he has learned in life and preaches often is that each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. And Amnon has done a terrible thing in this chapter, something that would land him in prison for a long time today. And this guy, Brian Stevenson, he spends a lot of time on death row, and he's been around people who have done terrible things. And the gospel is so powerful that not only someone who is abused and, and traumatized can be transformed and can live with hope and with joy, but someone who has done the abuse, someone who is in prison, needs to hear the message of the gospel and have hope and that each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. These are a couple of the broad banners, the dignity of every human being and the power of the gospel and a relationship with Jesus to change us that I want to be over today's passage. Well, let's get into today's passage now. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 13 and verse 1. David has just had this major downfall in his life. He's the king of Israel, adultery, uh, Murder, cover-up, lying, cheating. Then eventually his eyes are opened and David begins to walk in the light. But we are seeing David still at a very low place. And so 13.1 begins in the course of time. So some time has passed. We don't know how long. Maybe it's been years since last week's passage. And Amnon, verse 1, son of David, fell in love with Tamar the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. So if you're confused here, the family dynamics, we have a, a half-brother and sister between Amnon and Tamar. They have the same father, David, and they have different mothers. And it says in the course of time, Amnon fell in love with her. 
And I want to pause there and talk briefly, and I don't want to get too far into the weeds, but I want to talk about this word, love. Almost every one of our translations has the, the verb love there. So maybe I'll ask the question, does anybody happen to have a translation that doesn't have the word love there? Okay, a couple do. I'm going to put one on the screen. And I want to briefly explain the difficulty in translating one language into another, and it comes to play in this verse. The Hebrew word here is the word for love. And the difficulty is the Hebrew word for love has a wide range of meanings. It has a wider range of meanings than the word love in English. We would never use the word love in English for someone who is physically lusting and obsessing incestuously over a family member. But in Hebrew, that word has enough of a range that it includes that lust. So translators are faced with a dilemma here. Do we just use the word in kind of a literal way and bring it across in love? And most of our translations have that, including the one that is before me. But some translators say, no, that doesn't really work in English to say love here. And so the, uh, one, one translation uh, puts it this way, the Holman Christian Standard Bible. It says, some time past, David's son Absalom had a beautiful sister named Tamar, and David's son Abnon was infatuated with her. He was infatuated. He was obsessed he was lusting over his half-sister. So that is verse 1. She, Tamar, her name uh, speaks about her beauty. I won't go into the details, but if you want to look them up later, Song of Songs 7, 7 and 8 describes the particular kind of physical beauty that Tamar had. So verse 1, let's move on to verse 2. So Amnon became frustrated to the point of illness. He's getting sick physically on account of his sister Tamar. This is how obsessed in an evil way he is with his sister. For she was a virgin and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now we need a little background here where this phrase says it seems impossible for him to do anything to her. Here's the background from Leviticus chapter 18. Let's look at it together. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes, to live in accord with them. I am the Lord your God, so you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. General summary here. He's saying your neighbors live one way, the world lives one way, but the people of God are going to live another way. So the question now is in Leviticus 18, what is he referring to? How do the neighbors live? How do the Egyptians live? How do the Canaanites live? And he goes on and he says, none of you shall approach any blood relative of his to uncover her nakedness. I am the Lord. The chapter goes on. I'll save you from the details of the rest of the chapter, but the chapter goes on to basically say, I'll paraphrase, 
although your neighbors marry and are intimate with family members, you were not going to do such a thing. This is something that was actually common in the ancient Near East. As gross as it is to say that, it was common. Israel was not to follow in those common ways. And so that's what is coming out in verse 2. He has this obsession with her, but it seems impossible for him to be with her. So moving on to verse 3. Now Amnon had a friend named Jonadab. He also happens to be a cousin. Everyone in this unit of scripture is of the same family. This is not a good friend, but he has a friend, a cousin named Jonadab, son of Shemaiah, David's brother. Uh, son of Shemaiah, David's brother. Jonadab was a very shrewd man. So he asked Amnon, why do you, the king's son, look so haggard morning after morning? Won't you tell me? I mean, you're of the most prominent family. You've got all of this wealth and access and servants and attendants. Why are you so miserable looking? Paraphrasing. So Amnon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. So he gives a plan. Go to bed and pretend to be ill, Jonadab said. When your father comes to see you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight so I may watch her and then eat from her hand. So they concoct this plan. This friend who isn't a friend, this cousin who isn't a friend, uh, tells him what to do. Now we don't have any indication here that there's going to be abuse uh, or, or, or rape, but we have Jonadab telling Amnon to do something that is clearly against the law, the law of God, something that is evil, and to lie and deceive. Now, the careful reader of 2 Samuel here, thinking about the entire book, is thinking, I've seen something like this before. I've seen a man who was obsessed with the physical beauty of a woman, a woman that was forbidden, a woman who was against God's law, against ethics, against morality to have. And he concocted a crazy plan and abused his power to get her. Who, who am I talking about? So the, the reader would have this in mind. The apple is not falling far from the tree. David, who has been living most of his life since he is anointed to be king as a boy, growing in love of God. But late one afternoon, he goes off the rails and is full of himself and of evil. And the consequence of that are vast and they continue throughout the remaining chapters of 2 Samuel. And this is just maybe the most unpleasant consequence. The reader is supposed to see this pattern of a forbidden woman, an obsessed man, forbidden in the sense it is immoral and against God's law to have her, but he is obsessed and they come up with this plan. So I have three observations on today's passage and we're going to look at another passage. And so the first observation here in verses one through five is Amnon, like his father, obsessively lusts after a forbidden, beautiful woman. 
And then he abuses his power and his position to be with her. So we see this plan in verses uh, 1 through 5. Let's come back to the text now, verse 6. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, his father, Amnon said to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and make some special bread in my sight so I may eat from her hand. So David sent word to Tamar at the palace, go to the house of your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him. So it appears here that that David is just clueless to this plan. He has no idea what is going on. He's blind, as he has been blind before, and as you and I have also been blind to things that are going on around us, and we have no idea. We are spiritually, morally blind to what is going on. So that is the situation David is in. He's duped. Verse 8, so Tamar went to the house of her brother Amnon, who was lying down. She took some dough, kneaded it, made the bread in his sight, and baked it. Then she took the pan and served him the bread, but he refused to eat. I mean, can I just say here, this guy is a jerk. Not only is he going to do what he's about to do, this violent, brutal thing, but he doesn't even eat the food she makes. He is evil in every domain here, is what we are seeing. So she makes the food. She doesn't know what's going on. David doesn't know what's going on. I think we could go so far to say Jonadab doesn't know what's going on, doesn't know what is about to happen. He's, he's, he plotted this, but I don't think he plotted with the, the violence in mind that is about to happen. So we're in the middle of verse 9. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said. So everyone left him. So everyone here, this is, this is a, a prominent family, you know, so you could think uh, secret service, servants, uh, servants um, people to help. Uh, the people uh, of the king's family don't, don't travel alone. They, they don't do life alone. So, so send everyone out. So everyone leaves. This is an unusual context to be in. Verse 10, then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food here into my bedroom so I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the bread she had prepared and brought it to her brother Amnon in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, come to bed with me, my sister. Don't, my brother, she said to him in verse 12, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. Don't do it. Verse 13. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. I mean, Tamar is not only beautiful, but she knows God's word. And she is explaining the nightmare for herself, and the nightmare even for Amnon if he goes forward with this. Then she says, please speak to the king, who is their father. He will not keep me from being married to you. I think what's going on here is is these first things didn't work. I don't think she actually believes 
that he will keep her from being married to her half-brother. I think she is, like any woman here, completely desperate. And her physical ability to defend herself is not there. Her verbal ability to, def- to, to change course is not there. And so she went to this next level. Verse 14, but he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. This is through verse 14. A second observation that I have on the text, and I think this is important. Tamar stands in a long line of women abused by selfish and powerful men. The Bible records real life, and this is real today. This actually happened to Tamar some 3,000 years ago, and it is terrible. Let's continue with today's text, and we're going to jump to Luke in a few moments, but verse 15. So Amnon then, so he does this violent act, then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her, or he hated her more than he had lusted after and been infatuated with her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out of here. Get out of here. One commentator puts it this way, once Amnon has satisfied his lustful desires, he discards the woman as though she were refuse, a piece of trash. He's evil in every way in this text. He won't eat her food. He doesn't listen to what she's saying. She doesn't care. He doesn't care about her. And he doesn't understand or care even for himself. So she, he commands her to get out. Verse 16, no, she said to him, sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you have already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. This is complicated here as well and needs a little background. So take a look. So the the complicated part, if you're tracking with this text, what kind of woman would say no to not get away from him at this point? So so the reader, if you're not familiar intimately with ancient Israelite culture, you're going, why would she be saying no? That's what uh, an American reader in 2023 should probably be saying. So why is she saying no, I'm not going to get away from this guy? So look with me on the screen in Deuteronomy 22. Um, It says, but if in the field a man finds a girl who is engaged and the man forces her and lies with her, then only the man who lies with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the girl. There is no sin in the girl worthy of death. For just as a man rises against his neighbor and murders him, so is this case. When he found her in the field, he engaged. the engaged girl cried out, but there was no one to save her. And so this is a capital crime if she is an engaged girl. We have here a woman that is not an engaged girl. So this, in their culture and in their law, was not a capital crime. So what is expected in this terrible situation is for this man to provide for her, to protect her, to take her as his responsibility. 
This is the culture that she grew up in. She would have known of this sort of thing happening, just as it happens today. I'm talking about rape in general. And this is often what the outcome was in the ancient world when this happened. So she does not want to be sent away because in that case, she might be culturally disowned and have no man to care for her, which was essential in that day. She could not go and get a job on her own. She needs a father or a husband. And so she, because of the culture that she's in, does not want to be sent away. That is hard for us to wrap our heads around, but this was normal for her or a woman in this situation. So Tamar uh, says no, and then uh, coming back to the text here, we're at verse 17. He calls his personal assist servant and said, get this woman out of here and bolt the door after her. I, I don't want to see her again. I'm not going to entertain being responsible for her. I'm not going to be paying the fine. I'm not going to be doing what I'm supposed to do. I don't want to see her get her out of here. Verse 18, so a servant put her out and bolted the door after her. She was wearing a richly ornamented robe. She would have been known as from the king's family by what she is dressing. No one else would wear the kind of robe that she was wearing other than a daughter of the king, a daughter who is eligible to be married. For this was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. That's the end of verse 18. Verse 19, Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the ornamented robe she was wearing. Now this is not what the law, what the Torah required, but this unfortunately was part of the culture of her day. This is what a woman would do who encountered this kind of abuse she would publicly declare what has happened to her by how she dresses. And that's what she's doing. The ashes on her head and tearing the robe, she is communicating publicly what has happened to her. She put her hand on her head and went away, weeping aloud as she went. She has no words. She is weeping. She is wounded, she is devastated, and she does not know how her future is going to go. So a third observation here is that Tamar follows Torah, and she follows the culture of her day, and she reveals herself as a victim of violent abuse. And she is weeping. We don't hear from her. And I think it is appropriate here to say for those of us who have encountered or shepherded or loved someone who has been through some traumatic experience, something like this, initially there are no words. There is weeping. And we come alongside and we weep. And this is what she needed. She doesn't really get this, however. I want to just summarize the next few verses. Um, her brother, Absalom, takes her as his responsibility. If someone didn't, she would be destitute. She would be in deep trouble. So, but he is not a godly man. He, he tells her to be quiet. You see that in verse 20. 
we have a tendency, even with the best of intentions, and I don't think he has the best intentions, but even when we have the best intentions, we often stumble with our words in trying to speak to someone in this situation, and he more than does that. But he does um, care for her. Verse 21, and this is important. How does King David respond when he hears of this? Verse 21, when King David heard all this, he was furious. Any father, he's furious. He's angry. He's crushed. He was duped. But this is important here. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't do anything as father. He doesn't do anything as king. The reader of 2 Samuel would know at this point that most of David's life as king, he has been known for bringing about justice to everyone in the land. That's why everyone was looking to him and loved him so much until till late one afternoon when he was walking on the deck. But that sin has led to drastic consequences in the ancient nation and kingdom of Israel. And David does not have it in him to execute justice or do what needs to be done either as the monarch, as the one who executes justice, or as the father. The reader, I believe, is supposed to connect the dots here. Why is he not doing what it seems any father or king or judge should do? It's because of what he himself has done. And he cannot act out of what he's done, regrettably. And this is one of the reasons that this chapter is here. May God give us courage to never respond in a face of some situation like this in the way that David has responded, by doing nothing. He leaves it to an ungodly son, Absalom, which we're going to see how he deals with it next week. What I want to do now is move to Luke chapter 7. Go ahead and turn there with me. And I'm going to quickly go through a unit of Scripture here. And when we read the Old Testament, we want to connect it with the New Testament. We want to read the Old Testament in light of the New, in light of the Gospel. And so when we read a text like this, the way I want to respond to a text like this is, okay, what does the gospel or what would the Lord have to do? What would the Lord want to be done in a woman's life who went through a situation like this, a nightmare situation like this? Someone whose reputation now, because of someone else as a victim, her reputation, her view of self has, has been destroyed. What would Jesus want to happen in the life of a woman, or a man for that matter, who has gone through trauma like this. Well, we have something similar, not the same thing, but something similar in Luke 7. Let's take a look at verse 36 and following, and I'm going to move quickly through it. So one of the Pharisees invites Jesus to have dinner with him. He invites him to have dinner because he wants to trap him or keep his eye on him or whatever. They're not buddies. They're not like-minded. So this Pharisee has him to dinner. So he went to the Pharisee's house, and reclined at the table. Verse 37, when a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, 
she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them. She wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Let's pause there. So we have this fancy dinner, formal dinner, at a Pharisee's house. You know, think uh, upper, upper crust here, well-to-do person, prominent person. Jesus, this guy who's making commotion, he's invited. We're going to keep our eyes on him. We're going to check out and see who this guy is. And this woman, and it's ambiguous, who has lived a sinful life, my translation says in verse 37. What could that mean? It could mean that she was a prostitute formerly. It could mean that she was the wife of someone like a tax collector who's involved in organized crime. It might be that she was in debt. It might mean that she was in past uh, committed adultery. It, It might even mean that she was abused in some way like Tamar. We don't know the details, but the town knew that this woman wrongly has been marked as someone who is unclean or lived a sinful life. This woman has the courage to show up at this dinner of these, you know, high-level people, socially, economically, uninvited. And in those days, they would recline at a a fancy dinner. Their their feet would be pointed, uh, pointed out away from the table. And she comes because she has a relationship with Jesus. And she worships him and kisses him and pours perfume on his feet. She has tremendous courage and confidence, this woman. Verse 39, when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. So these are the Pharisees' thoughts. Luke is telling us the Pharisees' thoughts. And his thoughts are, this guy is not someone we want to follow Jesus. Look at who he is allowing to touch him. This woman who has been looked down upon in society in this small town. Look at Jesus' response. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owned him 500 denarii and the other owned 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Notice Jesus is responding to his thoughts. (laughs) He, he, He didn't say these things out loud. But Jesus says, I have something to tell you in response to what he's thinking. Jesus knows what you were thinking. He knows what Simon was thinking. And Simon says, I didn't mean to say Simon says, but you can go ahead and laugh at that. (laughs) Simon says, I suppose the one who has the bigger debt canceled. Yes, you have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman. Not identical, but I'm linking this woman with Tamar, this beautiful woman who was abused in 2 Samuel 13. He turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears. It would have been customary at a, a, you know, at a, a Michelin restaurant like this where they're going out to eat in those days to, to wash the rabbi's feet when he comes to show respect and honor. They didn't do that. Why? Because they were probably trying to trap Jesus, trying to check him out. So we're not going to show the kind of respect we would to another prominent rabbi. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. 
you did not give me a kiss, which would have been customary. Men kissed each other on the cheek in those days. In Europe, men still do it. When they score a goal in soccer, they kiss each other on the cheek. They didn't do that. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. She, in spite of whatever she has in her past, and we don't know what it is, she loved Jesus much. She has been transformed. She shows up to a meal uninvited. She doesn't care what the town thinks of her. She has a relationship with Jesus and has been transformed by him. Verse 48, then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Were her sins forgiven because she read her Bible so much? Were her sins forgiven because she spent all this money? Because she had the perfume on her feet? Look at verse 49. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, here's the answer, your faith has saved you. What Chris said earlier in the service. Her devotion to Jesus, her expensive perfume that she used to anoint Jesus was a a result of her faith and, and her salvation in him. It is your faith that has saved you and this woman is going in peace. She has been transformed and the dominant thing in her life is not whatever the traumatic event that the town has put her down in, back up to verse 37, who had lived a sinful life. That is not who she sees herself as. She sees herself as someone who has faith in Jesus. And Jesus is saying, that faith has saved you, not only from the wrath of God, but has saved you from a miserable life in this world. That is how the Christian should read 2 Samuel chapter 13. It is a trustworthy statement. The gospel of Jesus is deserving full acceptance by men or women who have gone through significant traumatic abuse. Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners, including those who have been abused. Here's my summary. Whether someone has abused you, Tamar's situation, or whether you have abused someone, Amnon, faith in Jesus is central to living a joy-filled life and untethering from this traumatic identity that the evil one would have dominate your life. This woman in Luke chapter 7, whatever this traumatic events were in her life, did not keep her In fact, her relationship and understanding of Jesus brought her to barge into this house and do to Jesus what she did. The conclusion here is that Jesus redeems sinners, including victims of abuse. And this passage in 2 Samuel chapter 13 should give us hearts of compassion and love for anyone and everyone but especially for those who are victims of men who abuse their power and obsess, two generations now, obsess over a woman out of their own selfish desires. Jesus redeems and helps people 
like Tamar and like this woman. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the power of the gospel. We thank you for this woman. We don't know what was in her past, but we knew that everyone knew that she was, in the view of the Pharisees, unclean. But God, we know that she was not unclean, that she had dealt with her shame by knowing and following Christ. And she understood herself to be a woman made in his image and rescued by him and affirmed by him. We thank you for Jesus, for this personal touch toward this woman. God, for those of us who, who have abilities to interact and love anyone who has been through traumatic events, uh, help us, God, to love them, to weep with them, to pray with them. And may we never, ever walk away and ignore someone who is so desperate. Help us, God, by your Spirit to do what we can and to love those who so desperately need help. We pray in Jesus' name.